Well, amen and good morning, beloved. It's good to be with you. I love this church. I love the chance to gather with you. Um, in God's kindness, uh, BT uh, and our daughters Eden and Lorelai took a trip uh, to Lisbon to see Tiago and his family and to see Chris in Birmingham uh, and minister to them. And it was a sweet joy uh, to worship with the saints at First Lisbon. Um, I was so encouraged, but man, I miss King's Cross. So it's good to be back with you. I do send you greetings uh, from Tiago and his family and from the saints there at First Baptist and from Chris. They expressed great gratitude. We were able to meet with Chris and even uh, Williams, uh, a man from uh, born in Nigeria but raised in Ireland and then in Birmingham who came to faith that Chris helped lead to faith. So we were able to spend some time with him here uh, about his conversion and what the Lord was doing in his life. So both uh, he and Chris and then also again uh, the folks in Lisbon expressed their gratitude for your partnership uh, and labor, co-labor in the gospel. So greetings to you from then. Now, if you're a visitor, you need to know we regularly just preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And especially if this is your first time with us, you've chosen to come when we're preaching on church discipline. <laughs> Welcome to King's Cross. <laughs> Glad you're here. <clears throat> Before we get to our text, though, I do want to remind you, as we've said over and over, and particularly in our last time in Matthew, that all of the Christian life is by grace. So even the Lord Jesus, when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That we come as spiritual bankrupts, and by his grace we enter his kingdom. Or as we saw in our text the last time we were together, uh, he said, unless you become, turn and become like children, one humbly dependent who can do nothing for themselves but depend on the mercy and grace of God in Christ. You can't have the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom without this humble dependence. And so the Christian life begins by grace. Christian life is sustained and you grow by grace. And indeed, just as we sang, come thou fount, we'll finish, we'll see him face to face, all because of his sustaining grace along the way, and we'll sing of his sovereign mercy and grace to us. However, grace properly understood, biblically understood, empowers us to live new and holy lives. So all of the Christian life is by grace. But this grace does something to us. It transforms us. It brings us into a community where we hold one another accountable to lead these new lives following after the Lord and Savior King Jesus himself. One of the observations I've made uh, about life recently, and again, uh, kind of uh, people having conversations about the church and what does the church need to do and what about young people in the church and some of those conversations, I find, especially today, especially young people, young people often leave the church or scoff at the church, not because she's too serious, but because she's not serious enough. There's not a genuine accountability. There's not a lot of difference between often what they see in the Christian life and in the non-Christian life. So then, therefore, what's the need of the church? Visitor, I would say to you, maybe today you're, you're thinking about, man, when I'm looking for a church, what ought I be seeing? What observations should I make to know Jesus is present with that church? He's pleased and there among those people. How do we know God is dwelling alive and well with his people? Well, one, you need to find a community that by grace holds one another accountable. Christ promises to be there. We'll see that even in our text today. A faithful church is a church where members are not only passionate about putting to death their own sin, but passionate about helping their brothers and sisters as they fight their battles against temptation and sin as well. At King's Cross, we regularly say, as long as you're fighting your sin, you'll never fight alone. As long as you're laboring to follow King Jesus and you're struggling and fighting to do that, you'll never be by yourself. That's all of us. That's every Christian on the way to glory. 
And God puts us in faith families, in communities, to labor and fight that fight together. We're in Matthew and Jesus' fourth of five discourses. And particularly in this discourse, in Matthew chapter 18, he's teaching about the characteristics of Christian community. How do you know there's an authentic Christian community where there's certain characteristics you should be able to observe and see among those people? What sets us apart? What we saw uh, last time we were in our text together, Matthew chapter 18, 1 to 14, humility is a dominant characteristic. And we saw that humility is displayed in the fact that the definition of greatness is turned entirely upside down. That the world is thinking, get power, get privilege, crush people underneath you, and that's greatness. But in the kingdom of Christ, it's go down low, serve low, serve others. That's humble dependence on Christ and, and weakness and transparency and trust in Christ. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom, upside down. And then that humility fleshes itself out because you're putting your own sin to death. You're more passionate and concerned about your sin than anybody else's. And that humility is displayed in the fact that we have a father who leaves the 99 and will go after the one. And so that makes us passionate about humbly helping other people. And when they go astray, trying to go get them and bring them back to safety. So humility, that's a dominant characteristic. That's what we saw in our study last time. Today we come to a text where there's another characteristic. And it is accountability. So why do sheep like the one that went astray go astray? Usually sin. That's usually the problem. So the sin of not gathering together with the church, the Bible's clear, that's sin. The sin of not gathering with the people of God usually happens because there's more serious sin going on. That's often what we see. The author of Hebrews connects these two realities, that people don't gather with the people of God because they're straying into worse sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. The author says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So people draw away from the connection to Christ and his body because they're going after sin. This is why people go astray. This is why the Father's heart is to leave the 99 and go get the one. Well, the question becomes, okay, well then how does the community help in that process? So if our Father, if Christ our great shepherd, is a shepherd that goes after straying sinners, what's our role in that work, in that conversation? What's the characteristic of accountability look like among the people of God? Because when people go astray and stop gathering. Sometimes it's because they're believing false doctrine. They begin to question. There's unbelief in their heart. and They're not really sure if they actually believe this anymore. Sometimes people go astray and start gathering with the church because they're living in sexual immorality. And the guilt and shame feel so dirty. They feel like they're walking around with a flashing neon light of guilty and shame. And so they don't want to gather with the people of God and they're walking to destruction. Sometimes their marriage is falling apart and they're just hurting. But they're neglecting and they're back. There's all kinds of things that can be going on. So what do we do as the people of God? How do we be an instrument of God to hold people accountable, to keep them in the safety of Christ and his church? That's our topic for today. Because we know, Jesus made very clear in, in chapter 18, verse 14, it is not the will of his Father that any of these little ones who believe in him should perish. He means to keep them close by his grace. And one of the means that he does that is through his people holding one another accountable. So then the question becomes, how does an authentic community of Christ do that? How do we hold each other accountable? What does that look like practically and tangibly? How do we live out this faith family authentically following King Jesus where we have the, the right posture of accountability, the right process of accountability, and then the right context of where that accountability is happening? What do we do when people refuse to fight their sin? 
How do we hold each other accountable? Here's what Jesus promises in our text today. He promises his presence with churches who lovingly hold one another accountable. So this matters. His presence are with believers who, by grace, lovingly hold one another accountable. So let's pray and ask for help, and we'll look at our text. Father, we come to you through Christ our Lord, whose grace is sufficient from beginning to end. Believing he who began a good work in us will bring it into completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That you saved us by grace, you'll sustain us by grace, and you'll take us to glory by grace. But in this sustaining period, one of the great graces you've given is your church. So help us be faithful. Help us hold one another accountable to your glory and for our eternal joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at two simple points. How we hold each other accountable and then where we hold each other accountable. So how we do this, where we do this first, how we hold each other accountable. Look again at chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, again, I made the joke and you laughed uh, about the, the great uh, topic of church discipline at the beginning because often this is viewed and we assume it's a negative conversation. Like who wants to talk about discipline? Discipline at, at any uh, kind of level in any category we know is not a pleasant experience when you're going through it. Any athlete who's played any kind of sport knows discipline is not fun. You do it. You're committed to it. But, man, when you're at basketball practice and you're running gassers, you don't like it. <laughs> When the coach is angry at you in soccer because they told you to go run uh, three miles and your time was garbage, then they said, okay, now you got to get under this time. So there's a story Brittany West, who played uh, soccer at, at NC State, told me, okay, well, then I'm going to give you a time, and it's going to be worse, and you gotta, you got to keep doing it till you get That's not a pleasant experience. Or in baseball, when the coach tells you you got to run poles because you're not learning the signs. And so, like, why? Why do we do this in sports? Because we understand if we're not disciplined, if we don't do this, it can hurt the team and us individually. In a moment that's clutch, in a moment that's important, suddenly the outcome of the whole thing can be determined because we were undisciplined. And so we understand discipline is not a pleasant experience, but it produces good fruit when done correctly. Coaches give discipline to help the team and to help the individual. Discipline itself, when done correctly, is for the good of the one being disciplined and the good of the community that the one is a part of. This is true of parenting. Good discipline means to teach your children the right way to go, the right way to do things for their good and for the good of others. Everybody knows the worst kids are those who never get disciplined. I mean, it's just reality. Like, those who are disciplined with love and instruction and correction, they're those who contribute to the community they're in. Those who are undisciplined are a disaster. <laughs> like, so we understand discipline is not a pleasant experience, but it is a good gift that helps us live the lives we have called to live. Again, the author of Hebrews makes this case well. That we understand it's not pleasant, that doesn't mean it's not good. Discipline might not feel good, that doesn't mean it's not good. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So again, holding one of the accountable in the church, even following the discipline and accountability process all the way to the end of church discipline, excommunication, is for the good of the individual, for the glory of God, and for the good of the church. Now we have to acknowledge historically some churches have abused this, and it's awful and to be lamented and grieved. So where churches have abused their authority and hurt those weak sheep underneath them. Like, woe are they. But just because people have abused this good authority and gift doesn't mean we throw out the authority and gift. It's a means of grace to get us to glory. We can't throw it out. No, we have to say, how do we follow King Jesus in this such that it does bring God glory and bring the people of God good? Abuse of authority is surely a dangerous threat, but so is abandonment of authority. So again, how do we do this? So just a few observations about how we hold one accountable in this community of faith that is King's Cross. Number one, by embracing our familial responsibility. We hold each other accountable by embracing our familial responsibility. Notice he said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, some of the earliest manuscripts uh, don't have the phrase against you. And it just says, if your brother sins. Luke's account, if we look over uh, in Luke chapter 17, verse 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Either way, there's principles that would be if the person sins against you, if your brother sins against you, you ought to follow this. Or if your brother is just living in obvious rebellion and sin, you ought to do this. So either way, the principle is the same. We ought to go towards our brother because they're our brother. So I don't want you to just skip over the word brother. In the church... You're a faith family. That's why we, like, we call our members meetings. We don't call them members meetings. We call them faith family meetings. Because too often people minimize what a church is. Like a church is not just a gathering where we get together one day a week, sing the same songs, and listen to the same sermon. It's a family. And you understand if you've got familial responsibility, if somebody in your family is in danger, you've got to do something. So we've got to embrace this familial responsibility. The church that Jesus is building is not a, not a club with shallow relationships. It's not, a, it's not a community of people disconnected from one another Monday to Saturday who just again sing the same songs and listen to the same sermon. It's a family. This is what the church of Christ is. Adopted into Christ by the Spirit to the same Father. We all go to the same Father through the same Son crying out by the same Spirit, Abba, Father. So a lot of churches, I think, do not practice discipline because they don't love one another like family. Families know you've got responsibility for one another. Even if that means you've got to have an intervention with one of your family members. So we understand this in family. Like there are some times when a loved one is addicted to something or living a destructive lifestyle and the rest of the family is like, we've got to have a conversation. Why? Because we love them. They're family. That's what a, that's what a church is. It's a family united, not by blood of last name, but the blood of Christ. That we're adopted and then we're in this. So we got to have this familial commitment to one another. One of the reasons, again, I think some churches don't practice uh, church discipline because they view the church as a, a nonprofit social club or a brand with a sticker they're willing to put beside their Apple sticker or Yeti sticker or a T-shirt they're willing to wear with their J's. <laughs> and I'm fine with, with T-shirts and Apple and J's, uh, but like, I'm fine with all those things. But that's not merely what a church is. Like a church is a family. And so that, like, that's a, no, no, this is the family I'm a part of, not just a brand or a social club. 
These are the people I belong to, and they belong to me. Therefore, again, we call our members' meetings faith family meetings. So King's Cross, just members, let me talk to you for a second. Do you view the members of this church that way? Like the directory of this church ought to be incredibly important to you. You ought to know those people. You're responsible for them and they for you. So this is, this is like understanding church membership. Is Again, it's not just names on a roll. It's like, no, what family am I part of? Who's holding me accountable? Who am I holding accountable? This is the family of God. Do you feel the f- familial responsibility? So again, we, we, we hold one of them accountable by embracing and feeling this familial responsibility, but also by pursuing with familial sensitivity. So notice, he says, if your brother sins against you, go, show him his fault between you and him alone. First word you need to pay attention to is go. So again, fam- familial responsibility. I have responsibility. That's a family member. I must go. If I, see destruct- if I see a family member walking like they're about to walk off a cliff, I have to care about that. I don't want them to fall off the cliff and die. I've got to do something. So you must go. But notice how Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do you hear the emphasis? He's already said between you and him. Why does he need to also say alone? Because he's letting you know, hey, the whole goal of this interaction is the good of the person sinning. So you don't go to that person high and mighty, getting to point out where they erred and how good you are. No, no, you're a family member who's concerned and has this, uh, this concern, and you want to be sensitive. You want to keep it as private as possible, as long as possible. So the goal is not to talk to somebody else about it. The goal is to, the goal is to talk about the person. You don't say, look, oh, man, he's about to walk out in front of a bus. I think I'm going to go tweet about it. <laughs> so no, no, go stop him from walking in front of the bus. You go to him. You don't go to tell anybody else. Even if you try to decorate it like, oh, I got a, I got a prayer request. I need you to pray for. That's gossip. You can, you can form it in, in a prayer request if you want. It's still slander and gossip. <laughs> so, no, you go to the individual. So there's, there's, a, there's a familial sensitivity. I care about their reputation. I care about their spiritual health. My goal is not to talk to other people. My goal is to talk to my brother or sister between you and them alone. And the goal is to help them privately, humbly, and gently. There's wisdom. Proverbs 25 tells us. Argue your case with your neighbor, let alone your brother. Argue your case with your neighbor himself. Do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. A word fitly spoken. Picture this is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Imagine there's a whole sea of silver apples and one gold one in the middle. The one who's coming with wisdom to restore and help a brother or sister straying. That's what this is like. So again, we go privately. We go humbly. We go to help and serve. So the first interaction when you see a brother or sister in sin, it should feel like to them you're coming beside them, putting your arm around them in love, saying, you're about to walk in front of a bus. Let's not go that way. Let's turn back to Christ and his community. Come back here to safety. That's what, that's what accountability feels like in the Christian church. Not this wagging fingers and judging this, let me put my arm around you and help redirect you back to safety. They should be able to sense your gentleness and your humility. Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So again, you're... You're pursuing with familiar responsibility and sensitivity. But then what do you do when you get there? 
So I'm coming after you because you're family. I'm being very gentle. I'm letting you know I'm here because I love you, not here to judge you. But then the conversation itself, what do you say? Thirdly, you got a call to repentance with biblical clarity. Call to repentance with biblical clarity. So notice uh, in verse 15, Jesus says, tell him his fault. And then uh, when he continues and he talks about grabbing two or three witnesses, why did you grab the two or three witnesses? That every charge may be established of the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you're coming with clarity. There is something, there is sin you're living in, and it is obvious. So this is like uh, holding one of the accountable. We're not talking about like things of opinion. Like we're talking about there's clear, unrepentant, ongoing, observable sin. Like these aren't things that's like, ah, I'm not sure that's right. Okay, that's a different conversation. We can have those. That's a wisdom conversation. But what Jesus is talking about is, no, when a person is clearly living in sin, tell them their fault. Like give them chapter and verse. <laughs> like make it plain. Make it very clear. No, no, the Bible is very clear on this matter. You're living in sin and you need to repent. Or if they don't listen to you, take two or three witnesses fulfilling the uh, judiciary kind of laws of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 19, I believe it is, or 19:15, that is saying, no, no, this is we get witnesses to establish every charge so that everybody's saying, no, no, they are violating the scriptures, the clear teaching of scripture, and you've had the conversation and called them to repentance. So that there's clarity on sin. This is not about, uh, yeah, like sin policing, right? So when you're holding one of the accountable, you're not to be the sin police looking for every single error, setting them, setting them like a sin speed trap. I don't know if you've ever been caught by a speed trap. Uh, I have. So I, went to the, I was on the way to the beach one time. This was in college. And uh, I don't know if you've ever gone to Myrtle Beach and you've gone through McBee. But McBee is notorious for giving out speeding tickets. They've got a huge billboard as you come into this little bitty town with a big finger pointed at you like this saying, watch your speed. And if you go two miles an hour over the limit, they will get you. So I'm following my friend. I know this to be true. We're on the way to the beach. We get to McBee, and it's like literally like go 34, not 35. <laughs> like don't even risk it because this is how this little town makes their money to survive is on beach traffic. So we get it. So we do this. Well, we're coming out of the other side of the town. So we've gone through the little town. We've gone under the speed limit, and we're coming out. So we're four lanes back to highway, back to 55 or 65, whatever it is. Like we're headed that direction. McBee is behind us. Suddenly I see blue lights like what is happening I look down I'm going 49 miles an hour the sign says 45 I'm like I'm out of the town 49 45 is he really going to get me just out of the town so he pulls me over and, and uh, he's having a conversation with me I'm being very polite and respectful and, and you know sir do you know why I pulled you over I said well no sir I don't and um, and he said you were going 49 and a 35 er, talking about what I said sir the, sir the sign said 45 you hadn't gotten to the sign yet so this man is posted up right in front of the sign, <laughs> shooting people. I'm like, you, like, so again, when we talk about holding one another accountable, you're not setting sin speed traps, okay? So you're not sitting there trying to catch them for every little minor offense. That's not what accountability is for, okay? That's not what we're talking Now, you might need to call uh, and have a conversation with brother or sister on minor sins or minor offenses, sure. But no, also the proverb tells us it's a man's glory to overlook an offense, so this is not like if you're one of those people who just love confronting somebody, just take a breath, meditate on grace, and then think about biblical categories before you have any conversations. Like don't be one of those people. Instead, think about even what the scriptures say. So what are some of the categories the Bible says we ought to have the kind of conversations that if there's not repentance leads to excommunication? What, what are a few examples? Let me give you a few of these. Divisions in the church, especially doct uh, doctrinal 
divisions. Romans 16, uh, verse 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. Which is language of what you do with a person who claimed to be a Christian, but then you had to remove them from the church. You avoid them. So he says, watch out for this doctrinal division and, and one who's stirring up division in the church. Over 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul lists sexual immorality, greed, drunkenness, idolatry, violence, manipulation. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so says he's a Christian, if he's guilty, this is an ongoing lifestyle, of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So one who lives in ongoing, unrepentant sin, who embraces this lifestyle of sin, Paul says, avoid them. Idleness, neglect of biblical responsibilities, those who are not doing what the Bible clearly calls them to do as a Christian, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not according with the tradition that you receive from us. Open rebellion to the Christian life and teaching of the church in the scriptures. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. Um, uh-oh, that's, that's the wrong quote there. That's an that's a error in the, in the manuscript. Let me go there in the text. Second Thessalonians. There we go. Chapter 3, verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Or false teaching. Again, Second John, verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked words. So again, notice the Bible gives us categories of the kind of sins where we ought to go and that ought to escalate all the way into church discipline if necessary. So you go with familiar responsibility, sensitivity, and with chapter or verse, or at least clear biblical teaching on the fact that they're living in a lifestyle that warrants excommunication should they not repent. And for a second, let me talk to our brother pastors and elders of this church and any who would aspire to be a pastor. No, a part of what it means in pastoring is that you're willing to lead the way in these conversations. So Paul says in Titus, uh, to, uh, to Titus, he says, rebuke sharply so that others may be sound in the faith. If you want to be a pastor, you better be one willing to sit down with somebody, put your arm around them and help them go and turn and go the way they ought to go away from the way they ought not go. So I just want to let you know, like, don't ask about teaching at the church if you're not doing that as a lifestyle. Like pastors in public ought to be pastors in private first. Living and modeling and leading in the difficult, hard relational conversations. This is what pastors are to do. Also know that pastors in a church are not above this process. So this is not just members do this together. Members can do this with pastors. Paul, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So again, we must do this with sensitivity and familial uh, love, but with biblical clarity, unashamed of bringing the text to bear in a particular conversation. Next, also notice you must widen the circle as is necessary. So I don't know if you notice, Jesus first says, go between you and him alone. If he listens, you gained your brother. Work is over. Praise God. Nobody else needs to know about it. You've been a faithful brother, sister. You've helped a straying member come back into safety with Christ. Praise God. 
If he does not listen, he says, take two or three witnesses that every charge may be established uh, and by the evidence of those two or three witnesses. So you widen the circle. So the goal, keep it as private as possible, as long as possible. But if the private rebuke and interaction does not lead to repentance, we widen the circle, two or three. Two or three who are godly. Thinking through, man, what two or three people would be helpful, humble, gentle, know the scriptures in this conversation. Maybe it's a member who you know has struggled with temptation or has a history with the exact same sin this person's dealing with. Maybe that's one of the two or three you take. But you widen the circle, so it's like, man, I'm trying. They're going to walk off the cliff. Like, I'm trying to bring them back. They're not willing to come back. Man, I'm going to get two or three witnesses and, and bring them, and maybe that will help them bring them back to safety. And then if that doesn't work, we tell it to the whole church. Ecclesia, literally the whole assembly, the whole congregation, the, whole, the entire body of faith, the whole gathering. And then Jesus says, if he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as you would a Gentile or tax collector. Remove him from the church. That's the, that's the final court of appeals. But notice the principle. No, no, we want it to be as private as possible, as long as possible. We just want to help our brothers and sisters. But if our brother and sister won't less to listen to our rebuke, then we take another couple brothers and sisters along to try to help that. If they won't listen to that, then we bring the whole family in for a family intervention. If they won't listen to the whole family, we have to remove them from the church. And this is the reality of where we finish is either a person says, you're right, Jesus is Lord, and my sin is sin, and I need to fight against it. Or the statement becomes, no, my sin is Lord. I don't trust Jesus. And it's like, okay, well, you cannot be among us. And this is what Christ, if we're going to follow the Christ of Scripture, this is how he says we hold one another accountable. And our hope in that last step is that the voice of the united church would wake them up and shake them and make them realize, wait a minute, it's this serious. I'm living as if Jesus didn't die and resurrect for me. And my church loves me, and they're coming after me, and they've got their arm around me, and the whole church is reaching out to me. And the hope is that would stir them to repentance. Now, at King's Cross, the way that we do this is in our faith family meetings. We have them every other month. And so usually the elders end up being involved in that two or three gathered uh, kind of step of the conversation. And we shepherd, and we care, and we try to help. Most sins that people are fighting with, the congregation never hears about. We just make sure they're fighting. We give them all the effort and help we can in their fight. But if they refuse to repent, that last at our faith family meetings, that wouldn't have never happened on a Sunday morning, at our members meeting, we let people know, here's the general sin. You don't need gory details. Here's who all is called to repentance. Here's the evidence there's been a refusal to repent. If you know and love this person, if you have a relationship with them, any way to reach out, tell them we love them, God loves them. Repent, turn away from danger, turn back to Christ, turn back to us. Let us help you. Please fight your sin. Do that. If they don't, then at our next faith family meeting, we will excommunicate them from the church. And remove them from this family. Now, lastly, as we look at this process and how we do it, you need to know and notice in the text, restoration is always the goal. So notice what Jesus said. Call your brother. If he repents, you've what? You've gained your brother. In Greek, the word really uh, expressed means you've rescued them. Like they were walking out in front of the bus and you saved, you brought them back to safety. Conversations, all we care about is the safety. That's it. The glory of God, the safety of the individual, that's it. So the end goal is, no, 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 we have accountability for the good of the person we're talking to, not for their judgment, not to make us feel better, not to make them feel worse, but to bring them back to safely walking with Christ. We've, we want to gain them, the community, and, and we want them to walk humbly in that community where greatness is redefined, where people are killing their own sin, where we understand and we go after straying sheep, and they can't do that if they're indeed straying. But again, what if that person refuses to fight their sin? If they decide, I want my sin more than I want Jesus. If I want king sexual immorality more than King Jesus, then we must remove them. So Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
This congregation has authority to remove them from the church. Treat them as you would a Gentile or tax collector. No longer allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Why? That's the family meal. And you've decided you don't want to be a part of the family. You want your sin more. So you can't have the family meal anymore. You can't have the rights and privileges of church membership. You can't do that anymore. We must remove you. But even when we do that, do you know why we do that? We hope that that step will get them to repent and come back to safety. Paul makes it clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When you assemble the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why, Paul? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about forgiving and restoring a brother who's repented. So even when we excommunicate and remove from church membership and say you can't have the table, you're not a part of this church, we no longer affirm your profession of faith is valid and legitimate. We're hoping that's the thing that leads them to repent and come back. And just like the prodigal father in Luke chapter 15, we'll throw a party when they come back. And say, come, like that's the end. So the end goal of all of this accountability is restoration and health and healing. And what that means is it's because we, we care much more about if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life than in the King's Cross directory. We just care more about your eternity. That's the bottom line. And so it's like, no, no, no. I, like I, I want to make sure you're safe with Christ. You can join another church. You can dislike my sermons and how long they are. And tis, that's fine. That's no problem. Like, that's no problem. But you've got to walk with Christ as Lord and King, or you might be revealing you're not a Christian. And we love you enough to even let you be angry and dislike us as long as that leads you to repentance and faith in Christ. Because in glory, we'll be happy and we'll reconcile and be fine. <laughs> we just want you in glory. So this is the heart. So again, in all discipline, restoration is the goal. So again, in summary, how do we do this? By embracing our familiar responsibility with sensitivity and biblical clarity. We wrap our arm around straying sinners. We call them back to the Savior and his people. And if they refuse to listen, we widen the circle all the way to the entire church if needed. And if necessary, we remove them from the church, all in hopes that they be restored to right relationship with Christ and his people. Now, second point and much briefer. Where do we hold each other accountable? Where, where does all this happen? So again, we've talked through everything. And it's going to be a shorter point because it's been implicit in everything I've said to this point. But I do want to point out just a few things. This second point, uh, listen, sometimes people teach uh, verses 18 through 20, detached from this conversation. And they say, anything you ask my Father in heaven, he'll give it to you. And so then they just assume it's about prayer, generally. Now, here's the problem contextually. Matthew 18 is about relationships in the new covenant community of the church. We've just talked about what verses 1 through 14 are and how it's about humility, that humility must be a dominant characteristic in the faith family. But Jesus made very clear back in chapter 18, verse 6, that he takes seriously when outsiders sin against his people. So he said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me, so he's using the metaphor of children, to say, no, those who trust in me, if they call, it'd be better if you, you know, throw a rock around their neck and throw them to the, end of, uh, the bottom of the, of the sea. Like, my wrath is coming. So part of the humility of the church is when outsiders sin against us, we're gracious and we trust God's judgment's coming in the end. We're not en enacting justice. We know he will. We care about justice. We, we, we do everything we can to have a just society, but we're not the ones enacting justice. God will. So that's part of the humility. Okay, well, that's been happening. But what do we do when we see a brother or sister in sin? So if we're supposed to be fighting and killing our sin, verse 7 through 10, if that's supposed to be going or 8 and 10, if that's supposed to be going on and we're all doing it, but then there's one of us who's not fighting their sin. And we know the Father's heart is to pursue, pursue the straying sheep. Okay, well, then Jesus has given us chapter 18, verse 15 to 20, to talk about how he told you, or 15 and 18, to hold each other accountable. So he shows us this is how you do that. 
So then when we get to verse 18 to 20, okay, is this just a random insert about prayer in the community? Especially when you get to chapter 18, verse 21 through 35, and there's a massive parable on forgiveness, like the, the sinner who's rebelled that you called back, who repents, that you ought to forgive over and over and over again if that's what it takes. Okay, well, then that means clearly what he's doing in 19 and 20 has something to do with all the rest of it. So when, when he's talking about prayer, it's not just prayer generally, though God does, he can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. We can ask him, and nothing's impossible apart from the things of God. All that's true, and generally that's true about prayer, but specifically, he's talking to us about prayer in the process of holding one another accountable. So we're asking him, help us as we do this. So again, look together as we see where we hold each other accountable. Verse 18, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So notice three promises Jesus makes in these verses about the faith family holding one another accountable by grace. Number one, he makes very clear the local church is authoritative in spiritual accountability. The local church is authoritative in spiritual accountability. So no, again, in verse 17, the final court of appeals. If he doesn't listen to you, if he doesn't listen to two or three, who's the last people that call out him? The church, the assembly, the congregation, the gathered people of God. That's the final court of appeals. If he doesn't listen to them authoritatively, you must remove him from the church. So notice he doesn't say from a parachurch or a campus ministry or your friend of Christians that go to different churches. That's not where the authority is. The authority is in the church. Those things are good and well. And participate, enjoy those things. There's just no authority. So in a Bible study you have with other Christians from other churches, you've got no authority to excommunicate them. Christ has given that to the church, not to a Bible study or, again, to our campus ministry. He's given authority to the local church. This is how Jesus has set up authority on earth. Now, and why do I say that? Where have we heard this language about binding and loosing? Flip over Matthew chapter 16. Remember the interaction? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He gets all the answers. Then he tells Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds. Look at verse 15. But he said to them, Matthew 16, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then look at the phrase, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Peter makes this confession, you're the Christ. Jesus said, blessed are you. I'm going to build my church on this true confession, and Peter, um, uh, uh, Peter, this confession, and you as leading the disciples in this conversation. And then he says, I'm going to give you keys. Keys are authoritative. They unlock doors and let people in. They close doors and lock and keep people out. I'm going to give you those keys. And then when we come to our text in Matthew 18, he used the same language, binding and loosing. You know what's different? When he says whatever you bind and whatever you loose will be bound in heaven and loosed in heaven, the you there is plural, not singular. So in Matthew 16, he's talking to Peter. In Matthew 18, he says, I'm expanding this to the church. The church is the final appeal. Whatever you, church, whatever you assembly, whatever you bind is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose is loosed in heaven. 
So he's saying the church is the ambassadorial authority on earth. Now, this does not mean the church is infallible. We can make errors on this. <laughs> so the Roman Catholic Church would teach that, that the, the church's ruling is infallible. They can condemn you to hell. And if they do it, it's done authoritatively uh, in heaven in ways that we're learning. No, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying the faithful church that follows King Jesus will follow him and do what he's called us to do, clearly according to Scripture. Then we're representing the kingdom of heaven on earth in this moment. So Christ has given authority to the local church. This is what we see him teaching even in this moment. Keys of the kingdom are given to the local church to open and close the door, to admit entrance, and to excommunicate or removed from the church. So again, we're making a declaration. That's a credible profession of faith. You're Peter on this church I'll build, or on this rock I'll build my church. And not just a credible profession, but a credible confessor. You're in. You're in the faith family. You belong. Or we remove you because you're no longer submitting to Christ as king. You're submitting to something else as king. So again, the church assembled in local churches is meant to oversee this process. We're to bind and loose, to open and close. This doesn't mean the pastors. It doesn't mean the bishop. doesn't mean the presbytery. doesn't mean the general assembly. It means the congregation, the church. That's the word Christ used. Also notice, then in this process, because that's scary. Listen, King's Cross is growing quickly. The church has authority to bind and loose. As pastors, I just need you to know that mug is scary. <laughs> like, Lord, you've got to give us a unity to do the right thing and represent heaven on earth. That's weighty. That's heavy. Which is why, verse 19, our Father, knowing our Father, hears our cries for help. Verse 19, again, I ask, or I say to you, if two of you agree, so the church can be made up of two members, three members, <laughs> about anything they ask, it'll be done from our Father in heaven. So church, as you do this, ask, pray, plead, plead with the Father's help, and know it'll be done for you. Anything you ask, I got you. Whether it's a church of two or three or two or three hundred or two or three thousand, he says, I'm with you. I'm there. I hear you. Pray, seek my name, depend on me, be faithful to me as I lead and shepherd your church. If two of you agree, you're one mind, the mind of Christ. We serve in harmony. We understand that our Father has great interest in peace and purity of the church, and so we ask for his help. We're not infallible. We can make errors. We cannot condemn people to hell. That's God's job. That's not our job. Our job is to faithful represent, faithfully represent the Scriptures the best we can as a congregation, following God's Word. And notice the great promise in it all is our Good Shepherd promises. Not only the Father hears us and will grant and answer our prayers, but Jesus says, and I'm with you. Remember I said at the very beginning, one of the things if you're a visitor you need to look for in a church is, how do I know if the presence of Christ is there? Do they by grace hold one another accountable? Why did I say that? Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Where two or three say, this is a family. We're following King Jesus together. An authentic Christian is a follower of Christ. An authentic church is a group of followers who say, let's follow him together. And if one of us goes astray, we call them to repentance. We hold them accountable. And if they refuse to repent, we remove them out. And Jesus says, I'm with you in that process. Two or three, again, two or three hundred, I am there. My presence is with you as you seek to hold one another accountable. Our good shepherd is there. As we make disciples, Matthew 28, 20, he says, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. As we gather in churches, trusting his presence, as we hold one another accountable by his grace, he is with us. This is one of the means of how our Father pursues a straying sheep. It is not His will that one of these little ones should perish. Well, then how? 
How does he go get them? He sends us to hold one another accountable, to follow his word. We enter by grace. We grow by grace. We're kept by grace. We finish by grace. And know this accountability is a grace. Like this is one of the things that church discipline done rightly ought to bring security. Like these people actually love me enough that if I go missing, they'll come get me. Oh my goodness, that's grace. That's not law. That's not we beat people up with accountability. That's no, no. We go get them and bring them back to safety. And so I want you to see that grace empowers this transformed community and empowers us to hold one another accountable. Paul makes it clear, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace, bringing salvation for all people. What does that grace do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age here on earth. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Like Christ gave himself to redeem you, to buy you back, to purchase you, to set you free from your sin. He, this is what he did, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. So then what's Paul say? Declare these things. Exhort and what? Rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So grace is not counter accountability. Grace empowers it. Grace transforms it. Grace shows you this is what it's like to hold one another. Jesus died for you. He rose for you. He sent his spirit to dwell in you. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free from sin. Live in the freedom of Christ. And if you go astray, we're coming to get you. This is grace. And friends, this is one of the ways he will sustain you unto glory. It's because you have brothers and sisters who say, I love you too much to let you go astray and me not have an awkward conversation. Let it be awkward. I want to be with you in glory. I don't care if it's awkward for the rest of this life as long as we're together in that one. <laughs> like, and so this is what grace does. Jesus lived for you. He died on the cross for you. He got up on the third day for you. He sent his spirit to dwell in you, to transform you, to bring you in a community zealous for good works where godliness and transformation is happening. So a few applications in closing. Members, are you committed to this kind of familiar responsibility and sensitivity with biblical clarity? Do your brothers and sisters in this church know you're committed to them like that? Are you? Do you know your Bible well enough to do it? Or are, do you need to get in the text some more and say, God, help me. Help me know how to live this out and be a good brother or sister. Are you instrument of grace for your straying brothers and sisters? Are you willing to go, go get a hand around somebody and help them back to safety? Or are you judging them and talking about them as they walk off a cliff? Again, are you this kind of family member? To the straying and struggling sinner, fighting your sin, don't give up. Don't leave us. In Hebrews, consider chapter 12, verse 3, him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Struggling sinner, the discipline you feel is evidence of God's love for you. Come back to him. Don't run away. He's not disciplining you because he's angry at you and he doesn't want you. He's disciplining you because he wants you to walk in what's good for you and for his glory. Run back to him. Don't give up. Ask for help. Reach out. Visiting Christians. December 2nd and 3rd, we've got a connect class, a membership class, a faith family class. Come. 
Join us or find another church you can join. Because who else is going to hold you accountable? And who else are you going to help hold accountable? This is, this, is a, this is a part of the means of grace to get you to glory. Plug in. Do that here. Do that somewhere. Please, this is grace to you. Don't neglect it. And lastly, non-Christian friends. Perhaps this is what you've been looking for. A community built on the grace and mercy of Christ. One who would forgive you of the worst possible sins you could ever imagine. Infinitely more mercy and forgiveness in him than sin in you. Run to Christ. And don't fight alone. That's the invitation. No, no, no. You don't have to do it by yourself. We got you. Like if you're a struggling sinner fighting your sin and running to Christ, welcome to the party. (laughs) That's all of us. So perhaps God has now revealed to you, you are a sinner. You do deserve his wrath. But he poured out his wrath on Christ that he might pour out his love on you. Repent of your sin, trust in Christ, and link up with a family that will help you all the way into glory. A community where you don't have to fight by yourself. This is a characteristic of authentic Christian community. We hold one another accountable. Let's close in prayer.